90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm grading, so I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, last week was finals week, and I even had an early final, but man, yeah. It's like I like it because I don't have to take a final anymore, and so I laugh for a while, but then I get really sad when I realize I have to grade 45 of the same final. (laughs) At least when you took a final, you only had to take one. Exactly, and it was over (laughs) in two hours. (laughs) Exactly. There's not enough shows on Netflix to get me through this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> oh, you know, we're chugging along. We are getting ready for the arrival of our summer interns. So that's going to be oh, a lot of fun. That's great. How many are you getting this year? We have two interns this year. I'm very okay. excited. Awesome. So you got your, your laundry list of stuff you need them to do, huh? Well, actually, this is more of a choose your own adventure. <gasps> oh. Internship. Well, that's exciting. I mean, if there's nothing that you have in mind, we have plenty of things to work on, but it's more of a, what bugs you or what do you wish that we had? And let's help you implement that. Oh, wow. That's, that's very useful. Yeah. So, you know, we get, we get some nice functionality out of it and they get the feature that they've always most wanted. Yeah. (laughs) That's fantastic. That's really great. Uh, It makes me, um, talking about the interns though, it definitely makes me happy that, I have a job now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Good luck to them, though. (laughs) But I am am super excited, and I'm sure that we'll hear more about that as the the summer progresses on. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. But, you know, it's also been exciting. We've had several space launches recently. And last week, we said that we were going to talk about the sun. And one of the probes that's been launched is specifically to study the sun. That's awesome. So how long do we have to wait to have that follow-up show? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm not sure exactly when data is going to start flowing. This is not the first solar uh, instrument that's been launched, but this is definitely one of the most advanced. Yeah. Well, that is excellent timing then to start talking about the helioseismicity of the sun. Yeah. We're really excited to be joined this week by Professor William Chaplin. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. So, Bill, could you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are now? Okay, so I um, I did a, an astronomy undergraduate degree, um, actually in at the University of Birmingham here in the UK, where I'm working now. Um, and then after that, for my PhD, um, I started working with a research group who had actually made the discovery that the whole of the sun was pulsating because of sound waves trapped inside it. That's something we'll come on to look at. But actually what I was um, involved in trying to do was actually um, some of the early work trying to find planets around other stars using the same kind of instrumentation that had been used to discover that the sun was oscillating. So for a few years I was uh, sort of looking at other stars um, and then from about the mid-1990s my focus shifted back closer to home to um, studying the sun and um, since then that's been one of my um, two sort of main areas of focus. The other actually over the past decade or so has been actually going back 
to the stars and studying pulsations of stars, resonances of stars, in particular those stars around which we're um, discovering planets, so-called exoplanets. So the exoplanet thing is a really big deal, it seems like, whenever we discover these, but there's actually a whole lot of them, right? Yeah, I mean, thanks to the, the, the sort of the mission that we've been quite heavily involved in in that work uh, is a NASA mission called Kepler, um, which is coming towards the end now of its time. It, it um, uh, is now called the K2 mission, so it's now observing and trying to find planets orbiting stars um, across different parts of the sky. Um, and that has discovered a few thousand planets orbiting other sun-like stars. So that was kind of our, our involvement in going from uh, my research group looking just exclusively at the sun to looking at other stars. That actual, the springboard for that was as actually doing the analysis and our observation of the sun by treating it as a star, observing the sun as a star and not resolving its surface, but uh, observing it in the same way we would a distant star. And so all the analysis techniques that we developed for doing that were then very applicable and readily translatable to the case of getting data from a mission like Kepler, where we're observing stars, you know, hundreds of light years away. It's, that's really interesting because it seems like we think of the sun as this really special little snowflake, right? But it's yeah. it's not. It's just like all these other stars that are out there. No, exactly. I mean, uh, uh, you know, really the a lot of the what theories that we have for evolution of other stars, uh, a lot of that, of course, is based on our understanding and observations of the sun. So the sun is, if you like, a uh, think of it as like a Rosetta Stone for a lot of astrophysics. And because of the fantastic data that we're now getting from a new generation of uh, satellites like Kepler, there's another NASA mission called TESS, which is going to be launched on Monday, which will be doing an all-sky survey for planets around the brightest stars in the sky. Um, that's now meaning that we can start to think about using the exquisite data on these other stars to actually help our understanding of the sun. So things are sort of now that that crosstalk, you know, treating the sun as a star is not only um, working in the direction of using our understanding of the sun to further our understanding of stars. We've gotten to the point now where it's possible for that communication to sort of work back the other way and for our observations of other stars to help us place the sun, if you like, in a, and, and the solar system in a in a wider context. Well, so... Bill, to, to take a little bit of a step back, the way that I first learned about your work was by a book that you had written called Music of the Sun, the Story of Helioseismology. Yeah. And it's a, a really fantastic book. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, read it a couple times, that goes through the, the history of this whole process of discovery. So before we talk about the process, I was wondering, could you tell me a little bit about what it was like to try to distill such a large topic into a few hundred page book for Boy, the yeah. layman's <laughs> Yeah, writing a book's a, a big undertaking. <laughs> um, and I've just stupid, stupidly done it again more recently, but I have to say that the one I've just done is a, um, it's more like a proper sort of academic text. So um, actually that that wasn't quite as tricky. I, I think, yeah, the, the that, that first book I'd written, and thank you for your kind comments about it, um, Actually, once I got going, it was actually quite fun. And the, the, the part of it I think that I enjoyed the most was actually interviewing 
uh, academic colleagues from from around the world who many of whom I you know worked with um, and but of course had interacted with them if you like in, a, in a, an academic research context actually sitting down and chatting to them and interviewing them in more to sort of tease out the sociological sort of history of the field that was the bit I think that I really enjoyed the most and a lot of people were very very keen to talk about that I guess in you know in many cases they just hadn't had a chance to sort of go over and elucidate the, the history of actually how the field had developed um, so actually sort of bringing everything together was a bit of a challenge but fortunately I found that um, different people's recollections did tend to on the whole actually tie together so once I actually brought everything together in terms of the research and people were very kind in allowing me to let them tape them um, once I actually brought everything together it did feel like it was sort of fitting into a fairly sort of coherent narrative where everyone was pretty much saying the same thing so everyone's recollections were fairly consistent which was good see john we didn't have to do a podcast we just could have each written a book and done that <laughs> i feel that's exactly why yeah, we've yeah. undertaken this so that's um yeah. that's I think a really having that neat. record is really important and um you know when I, when I was doing the research on that i remember i mean this is now gosh 15 years ago something like that um you know sort of actually um taping people with old style cassettes and um, i still have a pile of them in my study these old little cassettes with everyone tapes yeah so <laughs> it's going back away yeah beautiful <laughs> so what about the uh, the more recent so the more recent thing? one is a sort of proper academic textbook um that i wrote with a um, a colleague from Yale University, Professor Sabani Basu. Um, there, what we wanted to do was to kind of fill a hole in the market in that um, there hadn't been an academic textbook written on the field of um, what we call astro-seismology, which is studying pulsations of stars. Um, and when, when we talk about this in the context of the sun, we call it helioseismology that um, the thing that really sort of opened up and revolutionized our field was the wonderful data that we got from the NASA Kepler mission on other stars. And uh, once we got all these wonderful data, it sort of completely changed the sorts of things we could do with the data. It drove the analysis, so development of the analysis techniques that we use to actually analyze and interpret the data as well. So there was a need there for a, you know, very much for a book that would actually, if you like, record the legacy of Kepler in terms of, you know, this is where we're at now. This is the theory behind pulsations of stars. But also importantly for that book, these are the, you know, the sort of the standard analysis techniques that we're now able to use and apply to stars to study their pulsations. And so that's kind of the focus of the book. It's kind of a, what a textbook that sort of, I don't know, pitched at sort of higher level undergraduate, sort of postgraduate research student um, level, but also as well for, you know, um, academics as well, who are maybe in um, sort of neighboring fields, like your good selves, you know, your, your field is, you know, in terms of um, studying, um, you know, uh, I don't know, resonances, natural resonances of the earth or of the planets, you know, many of the techniques that we actually use are quite similar. 
um, that it gives people an opportunity to find out about the techniques that we're applying to stars as well. So I definitely agree that our, our fields are very similar and most of our listeners have heard us talk about doing uh, seismological studies mm. where we either look at the normal modes of yep. the earth or have some sort of active source but we're just trying to use yep. wave propagation to understand the structure of something so how does that translate to the study of the sun what can we learn about the sun by yeah, looking so at the, seismological um, light signatures in the case of the sun maybe a good place to start is how we get these waves in the first place inside the sun because they do essentially you know we get uh, we're able to observe the signatures of normal modes of the sun and also we can do the same thing with other stars so in a star like the sun um, here we're talking about standing waves um, standing sound waves um, inside the sun that are able to set up um, uh, its normal modes so you get um, uh, resonances set up and a, a lovely pattern of you know overtones uh, of the star um, where does that sound come from um, a star like the sun um, the outermost layers of the interior are convectively unstable. So um, throughout most of the interior of the sun, so at the center of the sun, uh, you've got nuclear fusion reactions that are fusing, converting hydrogen into helium. That's releasing the energy that's, that's powering the sun. And then throughout the inner two thirds by radius or so, all of that energy that's generated in the core is transported outwards by radiation little packets of light photons. But when you get to about two thirds of the way out from the center of the sun, um, another mechanism takes over to transport that energy and that's the process of, of convection. So here the, the energy is being transported by literally moving hot parcels of gas from one place to another. So from the bottom of that zone all the way up to the surface. Now very, very close to the surface, literally in the outer few hundred kilometers or so of the sun. And bear in mind, the radius of the sun is about 700,000 kilometers. Uh, in that tiny, tiny layer just beneath the surface, um, you get a lot of turbulence because of this, uh, because of the convection. And of course, turbulence, that's just changes in pressure in the gas. And of course, that's just, that makes sound. That's a sound wave. So this turbulence in the outermost layers of the sun acts as a natural ray to generate the sound. And that process happens right across the surface of the sun. And it happens across a whole range of different, uh, in terms of you know, the, the uh, characteristic length scales of the sound waves, it happens across a whole different range of length scales and also time scales as well. Now, even though the sun is a big ball of gas, it doesn't have solid edges. Uh, the sun nevertheless acts as a natural cavity to trap the sound. Uh, the sound is trapped within the sun. Uh, it's able to reinforce some of the sound waves, travel all the way to the center of the star, uh, through the center and back to the surface where they're reflected. And these sound waves are able to set up the um, standing sound waves and the, the normal modes of, of, um, of, of, of the star. And because the star again is a big ball of gas, those trapped sound waves, the compressions and relaxations of them um, mean that when we look at the surface of the sun, we see it gently pulsating or breathing in and out. 
And so that those surface pulsations are the visible manifestation of the these trapped standing sound waves, the natural resonances, the normal modes of the interior of the sun. And so if we measure the um, the periods or the frequencies of the at which the sun is breathing in and out, and the sun is breathing in and out not just in one of these modes, but simultaneously in many, many thousands of different modes, um, that then gives us direct information not only on the gross properties of the sun, so its average density, its size and its mass, but also as well we can build up a picture of what the inside of the sun looks like. Um, effectively we can do the equivalent of an ultrasound scan and the reason for that is that um, we actually get um, modes of, if you like, vibration or pulsation that are set up by sound waves that um, are trapped in cavities that penetrate to different depths inside the sun. So some modes may be set up by sound waves that are trapped in cavities in just the outermost parts of the sun. Some other modes may be the result of sound waves that are in cavities that penetrate all the way to the centre of the sun. So the fact that we've got these different modes that are formed by sound waves that are penetrating to different depths in the sun, that enables us then to actually build up a picture of what the inside of the sun looks like from the surface all the way down into the, into the centre. So 700,000 kilometers radius, how thick is this turbulent layer where these sound waves are generated then? So it literally is just, we think, maybe a few hundred kilometers thick. So in a, in a really, really thin layer, yeah, just at the surface, it's like having this really, really incredibly localized source for making the sound right at the surface. Um, but you know the, the interior of the sun is transparent to that sound, so those sound waves are able to penetrate. You know some of them all the way right to the centre of the star, and that enables us then to you know as I said build up a picture of what the inside of the sun looks like, or another star like the sun as well. Crucially, because the you know some of those sound waves are getting all the way to the centre of the star, that's where in a star like the sun you've got the nuclear reactions which are driving its evolution um, it's sort of like the ticking i don't know the ticking heart of the star so if we've got sound waves that are penetrating all the way in there that means that they are going to be affected their propagation is going to be affected by the conditions there and so that gives us information then on these deep lying regions which otherwise you know there's just no way we'd be able to you know there's no other way of building up a picture detailed picture of what the inside of a star looks like other than using these, you know, the, the, the signatures we get on the surface of the sun, the pulsations that are the result of these waves trapped inside. So in the Earth, when we're looking at compressional waves, we're looking at the 3 to 15 kilometer per second velocity range, depending on where we are in the Earth. What's a propagation velocity of, the sound, of a sound wave in different parts of the sun? So at the surface of the sun, uh, typically we're talking about speeds of the order of a, of a few kilometers per second. But then as we head into the center of the sun, those speeds rise dramatically. And the reason for that is the, um, the rising temperature as we go towards the center of the sun. So at the surface of the sun, the temperature of the gas is around about 6,000 degrees. By the time we've got into the, you know, right 
near the center of the sun there we're talking about temperatures of the order of maybe 15 million degrees so even though i mean if, you know a few kilometers per second sounds like you know it's pretty fast at the surface but once you get near the center of the sun then the um the sound speed you know it goes up dramatically and so what that means is that the sound waves they don't spend very much time um you know the closer they get to the center of the sun they'll zip through that region because it's so hot and the sound the natural speed of the waves is so high but nevertheless they still spend enough time there to carry the signature of what's going on there so it does mean that you know even though those waves are not spending very much time near the center we've still got enough there to actually build up a picture of what's going on deep down in the sun so the sun's really close to us can we see that kind of detail for some of these other stars that kepler's looked at and farther away yeah so that's right the sun is in a very privileged position what that means then is it, it affects the types of modes that we can actually observe so um the best way to sort of describe this i mean that there are different in addition to um modes that are formed by sound waves that penetrate to different depths within the sun this also as well affects the complexity of the pattern of oscillation or pulsation that we see on the surface of the sun as well so for example this the simplest type of pulsation that you can have for a star is what we call the breathing mode and this is where the entire star expands and contracts as one and it you know a star like the sun is basically spherical in shape and so a star that executes a breathing mode it expands and contracts um as one and preserves its spherical shape while it does that and those types of modes as well are formed by sound waves that penetrate right to the center of the star the next most complicated one you can have is what we call a dipole mode so one half of the sun is contracting while the other half of half of it is expanding and those are formed by waves as well which penetrate right near the center of the star you could imagine as well now getting more and more complicated um patterns of oscillation which um essentially look like if you like the patterns of oscillation patterns of vibration you get on a drum skin where you have lots of you know uh, some regions that are moving out some regions that are moving in now imagine stretching that over the surface of a star so you've got some regions that are moving towards us some regions that are moving away from us and you can get more and more and more complicated so you sort of have like a checkerboard like pattern of vibration on the surface now as that pattern gets more and more complicated so as if you like the size of the um the individual um 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 dark uh, you know checkerboard regions get smaller and smaller what happens is if you now average that signal over the visible disk of the star and this is all we can do when we observe a distant star we can't do what we can with the sun and resolve individual parts of the surface all we can do is measure the net signal that we get when we average over the surface so is the if the whole of the surface of the star is moving towards us or away from us when we average that signal over the surface because we can't resolve the surface we'll still get a measurable signal but when we get to the point where we have this sort of checkerboard like pattern with lots of small patches either moving towards or away from us if we average that signal um over the surface then it basically cancels out to zero and it means we can't observe those modes 
So how far away a star is, so basically, you know, um, the sun versus other stars, because we can't resolve the surfaces of other stars in any kind of great detail, it means we can only observe the modes of pulsation that have very simple patterns on the surface. But nature's been very kind in that those are the modes that are formed by sound waves which penetrate to the centers of these stars. So even though it limits hugely the number of modes we can observe, they are the ones that give us information about, about what's happening at the centers of these stars. And that's what we need to know if we want to say, for example, how old the stars are, how evolved they are, what stage of evolution they're in. Um, that sort of information is incredibly important for you know just informing our understanding of how stars evolve full stop. But that can be really handy if, for example, you've discovered a star that has planets orbiting it, and you find maybe the planets in the habitable zone of the star, possibly. And so then you might want to know, well, how old might those planets be? And we can set limits on that from aging, aging the star. Okay, so you mentioned that we get this averaging on the further away stars, but on the sun that we can resolve a lot more detail. Yes. So a lot of this early, the earlier work in this, I believe the pivotal paper was in 1975, if that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what kind of instrumentation is required to be able to do this? So there are the, the observations that have been made from the ground and those first pioneering observations, they were actually done um, using the Doppler technique. So um, essentially what we're doing there is looking to see as the star pulsates in and out and we've got different patches of the surface of the sun either moving towards or away from us. Um, there we're looking to measure the Doppler shift of those regions as they move towards and away from us. And so what those instruments do, they um, are able to um, observe the Doppler shift of a of what are called absorption lines or Fraunhofer lines in the spectrum of the star. So if we look at a um, the light that we receive from a star and we split it into its individual constituent colors, um, you know, we'll see the colors of the rainbow, but if we look really, really closely, we can see that that spectrum is actually crossed with incredibly fine dark lines. And those fine dark lines, which we call Fraunhofer lines, they are parts of the spectrum where um, atoms of different types in the atmosphere of the sun have actually absorbed some of the energy, some of the light that's coming up from further down in the star. And um, that creates these little features. And the wavelength at which we observe those fine dark lines, um, they will wobble backwards and forwards if the layer um, that has those atoms that are doing the absorbing is also moving backwards and forwards. So if a star is pulsating, and that includes you know, its surface layers, where we actually um, have the atoms that are forming these lines, if, that, if those layers are moving backwards and forwards, we can see these little lines um, moving backwards and forwards as well. And that's the, the main method uh, certainly for ground-based observations that we've actually used to uh, to measure these pulsations. The, the, the changes we're talking about, I mean, they're really, really tiny changes. Um, for example, if we take one of the, um, that the, I talked about those sort of simple breathing modes of pulsation. If you actually look at the 
um, the velocity, the speed at which the sun is expanding in and out as a result of one of those individual breathing modes that we observe. Uh, the, the speed at which the sun's moving in and out is of the order of walking pace. So we're talking about it takes the sun, that the, the modes that are most prominent that we see have periods of around about five minutes. And that's why the, the oscillations of the sun are sometimes colloquially referred to as the five minute oscillations of the sun. Um, and so if it takes five minutes to execute one pulsation at walking pace, we're talking about the sun being displaced in size by the order of maybe a few tens of meters due to those breathing modes. Um, that's not a lot, right? And again, think back to the size of the sun, 700,000 kilometers. So you've got to have some quite sensitive instrumentation to be able to measure these tiny changes. But, um, you know, that instrumentation was there and it was possible to do that. Um, in the 1970s. So it, when you're looking at this, is it a, a spectrometer on the end of a telescope that is rastered across the surface of the sun over time? Or how exactly is this Doppler shift measured with the instrument? So now uh, usually what's done, so we have, um, you know, a what we'll do is take high resolution images of the surface of the sun um, so you'll divide, you know, the surface of the sun up into many individual pixels with a, you know, a high resolution camera. And then um, in each of those individual pixels, what you'll do then is measure the, the Doppler shift within that pixel. So essentially then what you're getting then is if you like a, a, Doppler, a Doppler velocity map um, right across the visible surface of the sun. The instrumentation um, that we have, we actually have a, a global network of telescopes that my research group here in Birmingham um, operates that we call the Birmingham Solar Oscillations Network. This global ne network of telescopes we run um, does something slightly different. There we don't resolve the surface of the sun. So what we do is we make a disk averaged measurement of the Doppler shift. We treat the sun as if it was a star. And so that's the same way that we would observe a, you know, a distant star that we can't resolve the surface in any kind of detail at all. And so what we do there is we're just measuring the effectively the disk averaged Doppler shift of the, um, of the star. And to enable one to get enough um, light from the star to be able to do that and get a decent, decent measurement, when we observe other stars, we're relying on, you know, making those observations at really big, um, you know, really big ground-based uh, telescopes. Although admittedly, actually now with advancements in the, the instrumentation that actually does the analysis of the light, the spectroscopic analysis, as we call it, of the, of the light, you can, you know, get, you don't have to have exotically sized telescopes, you know, sort of one and a half, two meter sized telescopes will enable you to um, observe oscillations of the brightest sun-like stars in the sky and then the other option is to you know you can go to space so there are space-based um, instruments that have been devoted to observing oscillations of the sun there what one does is one uses much much simpler um, methods of analysis uh, basically measuring the brightness change so as the star pulsates as it contracts you're squeezing the gas and it's getting hotter and brighter and then as the star relaxes it gets cooler and it and it darkens and we get less light from the star. 
And so, um, you know, being able to measure what we call photometrically, measuring the brightness changes of the star, the instrumentation that's needed to do that is a lot, lot simpler than what's needed to uh, measure the Doppler shifts. And it's also a lot lighter as well. The kit needed to do that usually. So um, when we make these observations from space, be it of um, the sun or the stars, they are usually made photometrically. And that's, for example, how the NASA Kepler mission made its observations. So how much more resolution did these space-based uh, observations get us then from the earlier ground-based? I think um, it's actually pretty similar. So they're obviously making observations from the ground, the one thing that one does have to um, get over, of course, is, is all the gunk and muck in the Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> and so that, that does limit the you know the, the 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 spatial resolution the fine resolution that you can actually achieve, and clearly that was you know what one important motivation for going to space is that you you remove the Earth's atmosphere, and so you can make observations of the surface of the sun in incredible fine detail. Um, you know that's important not only for it means that we can observe these oscillations on much much finer scales, but of course that opens up lots of other. Um, you know, classic types of solar physics observations as well, that it just wouldn't be, either either it wouldn't be possible to make from the ground or just the quality of the data would be much, much worse. Yeah, so looking at uh, some of the data coming back from things like the SOHO spacecraft, it almost looks synthetic because it's, it's so it, it, uh, Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I think, that, you know, the quality is incredible. Um, the you know the kind of fine resolution it's now possible to you know resolve these incredibly fine features at ridiculous scales on the surface of the sun um you know looking at i don't know features like the individual elements of um sunspots uh in particular as well the the um when we we talked right at the top about how the sound is made in the sun about how the um you know the, the turbulence or the convection we get on the surface of the sun and that's actually um, visible at the surface in a, in a pattern that we call granulation. So there we can see the individual convective cells on the surface of the sun, which have these sort of hot, bright central regions where the hot gas is coming up from the, the um, beneath the surface of the sun. And then we have what are called dark intergranular lanes, uh, which lie around these individual cells where that gas then is, the hot gas has dumped its energy it dumps its energy so it's then cooler and darker and it then sinks back down. So you get this kind of like honey, honeycomb-like pattern on the surface of the sun. And, you know, so incredible images you can get from these space-based observations. I, I should add that with, you know, clever techniques that are used from the ground, it is possible to make very now very high resolution observations of features like that on the surface of the sun from the ground using very clever techniques which are actually able to sort of beat um, and actually uh, yeah, beat the effects that we get in the, you know, from all the gunk and everything in the Earth's atmosphere. Um, but yeah, the, the, the resolution we get from space is fantastic. And there are some, you know, new space missions coming up that are going to be producing like um, the Solar Orbiter mission, um, which will be launched in the, in, the, in the not too distant future, which is actually going to get much closer to the sun than any other missions that we've had. And that's going to produce, you know, some wonderful images of the surface of the sun. So thinking to a physics 101 
sort of idea about standing waves in anything, there are two modes. So you've got a, a pipe with a standing wave, uh, the open pipe, or you've got a pipe that's capped off at one end. And if that pipe is capped off at one end, then you're going to only see the odd harmonics. Whereas if it's a fully open pipe, then you see all of the harmonics or the overtones. How does the sun behave since it's not a pipe? Yeah, so you can sort of think about, um, I mean, the simplest way one could think about it is sort of being, if you like, closed at the center and open at the surface. Um, but in reality, things that aren't quite like that. So um, if you actually look at the, um, how the, this, if you like, the sort of boundary conditions compared to the sun versus the case of, a, you know, an, an open or closed pipe, it's kind of neither one or the other. Um, although the certainly near the surface, the sort of closest analogy would be um, treating you know the, the the surface of the sun as being a bit like a um, an open ended pipe. Um, thinking about how you sort of get from a you know the the resonances of a pipe through to the resonances of a sphere. Um, one way of sort of thinking about doing that is first turning a you know a, a pipe into a cone. And a cone is just a section of a of a sphere. So once you uh, so in the case of a pipe, the sort of the um, um, the sort of way mathematically that we would describe the resonances of a of a pipe, a real three dimensional pipe, isn't quite the same as what you have for a sphere. But once you turn that pipe into a cone, um, so you know you close up one end, then you do actually get a description, certainly of the if you like the the spatial properties of the oscillations of the resonances you get, they are just mathematically just like the way that you describe the you know the resonances of a of a cone. So that's how we can kind of get from essentially from one to the other. Okay, so Bill, you mentioned that you're having the the solar orbiter missions coming up in a few years. So what are some of the big besides the obviously the fantastic pictures we'll get back? Um, what are some of the big unanswered questions about the sun that this and other missions are going to accomplish in the future? I, th I think for the certainly for what uh, studying the inside of the sun, um, a important and known at the moment is how rapidly the center of the sun is actually spinning. Um, so we can actually get information on the um, how rapidly the inside of the sun is spinning um, from these normal modes of oscillation. But because of something I mentioned earlier and the fact the sound waves don't spend very much time right at the center of the sun, um, it means it's quite hard for us to be able to get a real handle on how rapidly the centre of the sun is spinning. That has all sorts of implications, understanding how rapidly the inside of the sun is spinning for our understanding of how stars evolve, um, how they, um, importantly, actually how that then translates through to how they generate magnetic fields, how magnetic fields are reprocessed inside um, stars like the Sun um, through dynamo action. Um, that all leads then to all the visible manifestations of activity that we see on the surface of the Sun, you know, um, sunspots, which are signatures of magnetic fields. The other signatures that we see in the atmosphere of the Sun uh, that produce things like coronal mass ejections and flares, these are all intimately linked to or are caused by magnetic fields. And all of the reprocessing and regenerating magnetic fields, the sun's 
11 year cycle of activity. So the level of you know, the um, numbers of features associated with magnetic fields wax and wane um, with an 11 year cycle and the polarity of the fields then changes on a 22 year cycle. All of that stuff tracks back to processes that happen inside the sun with rotation being an important feature of that. Now, we think we understand, we've got a good picture of how the outer layers of the sun, what happens in terms of rotation there. Um, and that's, we believe it's that pattern of rotation that's the crucial thing that explains how the magnetic fields are reprocessed and everything. But then trying to then explain and get a handle on what happens to the rotation deeper down, how that's actually, how the um, the linkage between the rotation deep in the sun and the rotation in the outer layers, that's something that is, you know, we're still trying to properly understand and ditto for other stars as well. So this idea of how, you know, um, how stars evolve in terms of their rotation, the impact that then has on, you know, the regeneration and reprocessing of magnetic fields and activity, this sort of thing all tracks through then to then how stars end up influencing their local environments, how it influences the evolution, the dynamic evolution of um, other stellar systems as well that have planets too. So that's, that is a, I, I would say in terms of understanding what's happening in, inside the sun, that's a really important thing. Another thing is actually we, um, there are uncertainties over as well exactly what we think the sun is actually made of which may sound like a slightly stupid thing to say but what i actually mean here is the exact proportions of different types of gases or elements that make up the sun and there are you know some question marks that have been raised over whether or not we um think we we actually know as well as we thought we did um, how much of the sun is actually made up of elements that are actually heavier than helium. So what we call, um, astronomers tend to call anything heavier than helium a metal, which is very lazy of us, but that's what we call them. Um, but those, those elements, um, because they have so many different, um, what we call electronic levels, um, they really can have quite a big influence on the internal structure of a star because there are lots of different ways that those heavier elements can interact with radiation inside the star. And that can have a big influence on the, on the internal structure of the star as well. So there are important unanswered questions relating to that as well. Um, and then sort of tracking through to what Solar Orbiter is gonna do. Solar Orbiter is an important mission because it's gonna be um, the first um, sort of dedicated mission uh, for observing features on the surface of the sun that will actually have a view of the sun out of the ecliptic plane. So by that I mean um, the all, all of the sort of vantage points that we get from the Earth and also from other satellite missions and telescopes that we've had are all viewing sun, the sun basically from the same vantage point, um, from the flat plane that includes the orbit of the Earth around the sun. So we're observing the sun, we're basically seeing it from sort of, um, if you like, equator on, with the rotation axis stick, sticking up at right angles. And what Solar Orbit is going to do, it's going to be in an orbit that will crank it out of this plane, the ecliptic plane. So we'll get a first opportunity to have a, a, you know, a unique perspective on the sun that will allow us to get a much better handle on about what's actually going on near the poles of the sun. 
And again, from the observations that we have at the moment, for example, from the helioseismology about what's going on in terms of the um, rotation and the flows of gas near the poles of the sun, these are things that are really quite uncertain, and that's simply down to our vantage point. And so that is a, you know, something really important that Solar Orbit is going to give us. So, Bill, it sounds like there's a lot of things to be excited about in terms of new data that are going to be coming in and getting you know this first poleward look at the sun and so on. So where do you think the field is going to be in something like 10 years? Wow. So, yeah, I think in, in, in 10 years' time, um, I think one of the um, great opportunities that we have in solar physics now, we have sort of a, if you like, um, people talk about a grand observatory, the fact that we've got, there are um, several different space-based missions, some which are up there at the moment, some which are planned, but also as well, um, important, really important ground-based programs that are continuing or coming online which is enabling us to observe the sun simultaneously in lots of different ways. And so I think there are fantastic opportunities and particularly for doing that, you know, on these very high spatial resolution, very, very fine timescales, but also as well, potential opportunities as well for, you know, thinking ahead to capabilities that, you know, what would we like, to be able to do, we'd like to be able to make more observations of the sun simultaneously from um, different longitudes. Um, so I've talked about, you know, being able to make observations with solar orbiter from, you know, cranking out of the ecliptic plane so we can observe the poles. But wouldn't it be great if we could actually observe the sun from different longitudes? So in effect, we can get a stereoscopic view of the sun. Now, this has already been possible. Uh, with a mission called Stereo, um, which has provided us with a stereoscopic view of the sun. Stereo has been looking at emissions produced by the sun. So there are certainly, you know, opportunities there for missions that can actually look stereoscopically at the sun, um, but actually look at things happening on, you know, rather than just the emissions coming from the sun, actually making um, observations of the surface and the sun at, at slightly higher resolution than that. In terms as well of um, sort of, you know, big puzzles and things like that, I think as being able to get a much better handle on an understanding as well of our, uh, what drives the 11-year the solar cycle of the sun. Um, the most recent solar cycle um, that we're now um, in has been much, much weaker than previous cycles. So by that, I mean, we've seen um, fewer manifestations of surface activity like sunspots. And so it is an interesting question in 10 years time, as we get towards the end of the next cycle, um, will there be even fewer sunspots than we've observed at the moment? And is this um, just a passing phase or is it maybe pointing towards us heading into a period where we may see very few, if any, spots. Um, like a, there was a, a period um, a few hundred years ago called the Maunder Minimum, when very, very few, if any, sunspots were observed at all. So looking forward 10 years, there are opportunities both in terms of you know um, new data, new satellite missions, but also as well, the, the changing state of the sun potentially opens up new opportunities for us to be able to study the sun in, in a new light as well. All right. So 
Before we let you go, I know you've got to, another appointment coming up, but is there anything else that you would like to, to mention to our listeners? I don't think so. I think we've, I think um, your questions were great. I think we've covered pretty much everything I think I, yeah, that I wanted to cover. All right. And is there a way that folks could find you on the internet or keep up with the research that you and your group are doing? I think if people um, just Google my name, um, uh, so Professor Bill Chaplin, University of Birmingham, um, I think that will then point them towards um, various resources and web pages that we have here at the university that will point them towards not only the work that we're doing on the solar side, um, but also our work as well on, on, on other stars, other sun-like stars, and also exoplanets as well. All right, great. Well, thank you for taking the time to join us. It's been a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, Shannon, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go try to uh, do some spectroscopy here. <laughs> I'm just going to I'm just going to get his book and read it and be happy with the music of the sun, I think. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it. Fantastic. So I'm, I'm, it's already it's <laughs> on its way on yeah, it's on its way from Amazon right now, so I can't wait. <laughs> Perfect. So now for something entirely different. <laughs> it's everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. I mean, it's not entirely different. This could have to do with some gravity, right? Uh, yeah, it's, that's stretching it. But <laughs> Look, I'm trying to make a good segue here. <laughs> so the paper is, which feels heavier, a pound of lead or a pound of feathers? A potential perceptual bias of a cognitive riddle. This is by Wagman et al. Uh, yeah, I. this is fantastic. This is fantastic because I'm totally the person when somebody asks me this, I'm like, a pound of lead, duh. And then I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I should have thought about that. <laughs> so if they say which weighs more, well, yeah, they both weigh the same. But if they say which feels heavier, this paper gives you something that you can cite to say, actually, no, they're not the same. Mm, um, exactly. This is really strange. And I would not have predicted this at all, even though... I clearly am the person that always says a pound of lead. <laughs> well, I also wonder, this paper had to start out as after a couple beers at a Friday afternoon <laughs> department mixer. They said, you know what we should try? And they did it and said, holy cow, we have significant results. Exactly. As all good fun papers start out. Exactly. So it says the naive answer, my answer, may not be so naive after all. So their older brothers <laughs> take that. <laughs> and it all has to do with how weight is distributed as to what we would say how things feel heavier, right? Right. And so there have been studies before this that show that more concentrated masses are perceived as heavier. Makes sense. So therefore, a pound of lead would be a relatively small ball of lead, whereas a pound of feathers would be a pretty large container. Mm-hmm. And perceptually, that makes total sense. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, you you then do... So they put a pound of lead shot into a plastic bag and taped it into the bottom of a cardboard box. Okay. And then yeah. they took the same size cardboard box and stuffed a plastic bag with a pound of feathers into it. And mm-hmm. each box taped total weight of everything was exactly... 
637.9 grams because we have to use real units. <laughs> Which is fantastic. Um, so then not only do they do that, they sit 23 people down in a chair. They black they put on blackened goggles. They don't blindfold them, but essentially, right? And then palm up of their preferred hand, it says, with their fingers relaxed, they put the box in their hand. And so the participant was to heft each box and report which box felt heavier. Box one, box two. And they could go back and forth as much as they wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this... <laughs> I can just imagine you go into the lab for this study. So you're going in, you know, you're probably an undergrad that's getting paid $10 to do this. Yeah. And some psychologist puts black goggles on you and says, hold your hand out. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they only have 23 participants. Like, you know, 50 showed up, but. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then it turns out that a statistically significant portion said that the box with a pound of lead felt heavier. That's which awesome. seems strange until you remember how they did it. So a pound of lead was taped into the bottom of the box versus the feathers, the mass was evenly distributed. So we come back to not the the size of the object because they're both the same size mm -hmm. but the fact that it's harder to control the pound of lead because the mass is all concentrated in one area of the object right exactly and therefore your perception of the heaviness is that that box is heavier as opposed to the box which is full of feathers all the way through the box and so they said that this distribution makes a very big difference it's the uh the dynamical symmetry if we want to get fancy yeah i like that word <laughs> and so i was thinking about this okay if i'm going to carry a bag of quickcrete into my backyard to put a new fence post in i can definitely do that if i am carrying something like a mini fridge that's going to weigh about the same but the mass is highly asymmetrically distributed absolutely mm -hmm. that feels heavier yeah, yeah, you're exactly right, as opposed to your little two-foot-by-one-foot bag of quickcrete. Because mm -hmm. I'm having to do more work, more mental work, more muscle work to try to keep it balanced and under control and not going down the stairs with me. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. So this size-weight illusion is a real thing. Yeah, so next time somebody asks you which is heavier, say, well, you know... Really, they both weigh the same, but cognitively, there's a bias. See Wagman at all 2007, and you won't get to go to their parties anymore. Uh, no, no, not at all. I'm emailing this paper to my brothers right now, though. Yeah. <laughs> For trying to make me feel dumb when I was just ahead of my curve, because I knew about dynamical symmetry. Yeah. So if you have your own encounters with dynamical symmetry or perform this test on your friends and coworkers and have video that you want to share, <laughs> we would always love to see it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? 
Uh, please send us those videos. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Or we can publicly shame people, too. You can link that into Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. And I'm sure everybody would love that on our Slack channel. And we're the software underground on the Don't Panic channel. And we'd also like to thank our Patreon supporters. And you can support us on Patreon as well, uh, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 